doing this morning? That's alright. Alright, how is everybody this morning? Good? Enjoying the fall weather? Will you go to God and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we can't wait to dive into your word. We can't wait to learn from you. We're so grateful that you've brought us together. That you've given us this chance to fellowship and to worship and to listen to the teaching of your word and we ask that you would just open our hearts to hear your word to apply to our lives Lord we can't thank you enough for this opportunity I ask that you would be with each and every one of us in this room and each and every one of us who couldn't make it here today we ask that you would help us all to grow in you and to become more and more like Christ Lord and I ask that you would give us the courage, the strength, and the ability to take what we learn from your word and to go out into the world and make disciples with it, Lord. Father, I ask that you would be with me, that you would make my speech clear and concise, that you would help those listening to hear your word and to understand it. And we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. And we pray all of this in his precious name. And the church said, Amen. Amen. All right. We are working through... Our fingerprints series. We've been looking at the book of Genesis in a very different way. We've kind of been reading it in a spiritual way. We've been looking for the fingerprints of Jesus all over the text. So we've talked about the fall of creation. We've talked about God creating the world in seven days and all of these things and, and how it points to Jesus. And... Something very important occurred to me as I was preparing this message. When we're talking about how Jesus is all over, and when we, when I, so a couple weeks ago I said something, I said Eve represents the church and Adam represents Christ, right? We had this type and we talked about how it pointed to Christ. I wanted to clear something up, especially as we're going through and we're making all these connections. When we say that something in the Old Testament represents something in the New, do not take that to mean that the thing in the Old Testament didn't happen. I want to make sure we're absolutely clear about that. So when I say that Eve represents the church or Adam represents Christ, all of these fingerprints, all of these signs is not an indication that the original thing didn't happen at all. Because when you, so think about this. When you and I tell a story, and we make something in a story that we've invented, and we make it want to represent something else, it has to be a fictional story, right? Because we created that story to represent something else. That's kind of the way things work. Because I only have the right to give meaning to things that I create. So I can't tell you the story about George Washington crossing Delaware and then tell you that it represents... Uh, the president nowadays, or something like that, because I didn't invent George Washington crossing the Delaware. I didn't come up with that story. And so I can't give it extra meaning that it doesn't already have, because it's a real story. But here's the thing that's different about when God tells us a story. See, God is the author of this book, but he's also the author of the people that this book writes about. 
That's a very important distinction because God has created a story with real people and real events over the course of history, and he can make them point to Christ because he created them. And so any, any good story has a moral, right? We look at all of creation from the beginning of the world until now. We think of it as God's grand story that he created. He created us people. What's the moral of this story? Of this story? Well, I'm convinced that the moral of this story is Jesus. And so everywhere you read, I see God pointing us to Jesus, not just in words on a page, but in real life and real events. So I want to take a minute and, and just kind of get that out of the way and make sure we were all on the same page, that this is not some indication that somehow God didn't actually create the world, because he did. That there was a real Adam and Eve, that there was a real Noah, which is what we're going to talk about today. So if you have your Bible, or if you have an app, or if you have anything, the way you like to get into God's Word, I would love if you would open it up to me, up, up with me, to Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 9. We're going to read about the account of the flood. So I'm starting in verse 9 here. It says, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, become for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. I want to zoom out a little bit and give us a little bit of context. Because in the chapter right before this, in chapter 5, what we just read, and you can flip back and kind of look at those things, we had just read about the genealogy of all of the people who lived between Adam and Noah. And for y'all's sake, I did you a favor, and I took the liberty of going through all of those ages and years and doing the math for you. Um, because it's, it's Sunday and you guys didn't come to church to do math, so you're welcome. But from the time of Adam until the time of Noah was about 1,600 years, give or take. 1,600 years from the time when Adam walked with God in the garden to the point where God finally said, is enough is enough. Okay? So lest you think that God is somehow rash or impatient or vengeful in this account, I want to make you guys make sure you guys understand. God gave us almost two millennia to get right with him. Right? 1,600 years to get right, to repent and turn back to God. And another thing I want to point out about those ages and that genealogy, flip back, and you don't have to read the whole thing, but kind of stand through and look at all those ages you see. In chapter 5, Adam lived together a total of 930 years when he died. Uh, 912 years, 905 years. See those long lifespans? So even though God had said to Adam, you may no longer eat of the tree of life, a lot of the mercy and kindness of his heart, he still chose to extend their lives. Now, it's not forever. 
right? But a thousand years is nothing to sneeze at. When God didn't have to do that, he still gave them some of the benefits of the tree of fruit of the fruit of life. Even though he told them he wasn't going to, he still chose out of his mercy to do that for them. And so from the very beginning, we have to understand God has been pouring on us gifts that we don't deserve because he is good. So don't think that God is somehow being rash or unreasonable when he says he's going to destroy the earth by sending his judgment. He gave plenty of time. And even still today, he's giving us plenty of time. See, by my count, it has been 1,988 years, 6 months, 13 days, and 11 hours, give or take, since Jesus died on the cross, depending on how you do the time zones from here to Jerusalem. That's 1,988 years that God has waited to come back and collect his people. I know we as Christians, we sometimes fall into this trap of wanting Christ to come back. We want him to come back now. We want him to come back soon. But you've got to remember that every day you wake up and you don't hear trumpets in the sky and you don't see a big white horse riding in on the clouds, that's one more day that God has given you to go out and work for his kingdom. And maybe if you're somebody who hasn't gotten right with God, every single day you wake up and you don't see Jesus coming in on the clouds, that's one more day God has given you to repent and to be with him. Because he's patient and he's merciful. One more day God has given you to find life. One other thing I want to point out about chapter 5 and all of those ages that I think is interesting. Even though 1,600 years had passed from Adam until Noah, the peculiar thing about all of those ages is we get a lot of overlap in the generations. So that by the time that Noah's father Lamech was born, Adam was still alive walking around on the earth. That puts it into a little bit different perspective when you think about what we're dealing with when the people had become wicked and corrupt and all these things, right? In the days when they had turned their back on God, Adam, the very same Adam who lived in paradise with God, was still alive walking around. You don't think any of those people ever, I don't know, maybe talked to him? At least once? Surely they had to have. You don't think the conversation ever came up? And so when we read this, we think to ourselves, how is it possible for a generation who lived so close to the ones who were with God, how is it possible for them to become so corrupt and to fall away so quickly when the people who literally walked with God in the garden were still alive walking around? They were there to give a firsthand account of God's glory. Now, that's easy for us to say when we read it. But how many people here have grandchildren? Children. Okay, see some hands. Adam had the choice to pass along the knowledge of God to his children and his grandchildren. And apparently he didn't pass it on very well, did he? Because this is where we got. And we don't have the luxury of 900-year 
lifespans to pass on our faith to our children and our grandchildren. We don't get 10 generations of people that we can minister to in our family line. We get two, maybe three if you're lucky and you maybe have great-grandchildren, and that's it. And if our faith isn't passed on to our children and our grandchildren, this is where we end up. We're setting them up for failure. And so, God has promised that at one point he will come and he will collect his church, he will collect his people. And he has promised that he is going to destroy evil once and for all, but he also has provided us with an out. And so that's what I want to read about. I want to read about God's out that he gave in this account where he said, I am going to destroy the earth, but I'm giving an out. I'm giving a way to be saved from that. So read here in verse Chapter 6, verse 14, God says to Noah, So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. There's an interesting thing about the Hebrew language. See, in the Hebrew language, there's a lot of words that mean different things depending on the context. So this, this phrase, coat it with pitch, he's talking about this ark. It literally just means cover it with a covering. That's what the in, the, in the Hebrew, that's the literalist way to say it. He said, make an ark and cover it with a covering. And because of the context, we know we're talking about a boat, and we know we're talking about a flood, so we know God is saying, cover it with some sort of waterproof because the flood's coming. Right? But what's interesting about that phrase, cover it with a covering, is that in other parts of Scripture, in the Old Testament, that same Hebrew phrase is translated as, make an atonement. Like when they cover the Ark of the Covering of the Covenant, make an atonement, make a covering for it to atone for sin. And that word pitch, that make a covering with a covering, that word pitch can also be translated to mean ransom, as in you're covering someone's debt. And so what you get here is this awesome little play on words that God gives us. He says, waterproof the boat. Right? Very simple. Make a boat. You want to make sure it's waterproof. But then also, make an atonement for it with a ransom. And if you're like me, and if you believe God is behind every single word in Scripture, that can't be a coincidence. That has to be pointing us to someone else who made an atonement for us with a ransom. So God says, I'm, I'm sending my judgment, but I'm giving you a way to stay safe, Noah. I'm giving you this way, and the way you stay safe is by entering into this place where you have a covering, you have an atonement. He says, enter into the ark, which I think is a beautiful picture of the church, isn't it? It's a place where all who have faith in Christ can enter into and to receive that atonement of Christ, the church that Christ set up. So just like Noah built his ark, Christ says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church. And so we see Noah, he's building this ark, and how does he do it? Verse 15, he says, this is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Read all the way to verse 22. It says, make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening, one cubit high all around. Put a door on the side of the ark and make it lower, middle, and upper decks. 
I am going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath, the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You were to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them aligned with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, of every kind of creature that moves along the ground you will come to you to be kept alive. You were to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything that God commanded him. And then we read in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. I want to ask the question, what exactly was it about Noah that God found so righteous? Because after the account of the flood in chapter 9, we read this whole thing about Noah getting drunk on wine and, and being naked in his tent and his sons doing a whole bunch of bad stuff. And, and you got to kind of wonder, like, that's the guy that God found righteous? Because that doesn't sound like he was living a very righteous life. And so obviously it wasn't Noah's actions that made him righteous, was it? Because we know as a person he was flawed. So what was it that God found righteous about him? Well, let's read back at the beginning there in chapter 6, verse 9 again. God says, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. You see, we sometimes get this idea in our heads that... During this part of the Bible, the way you were made right with God was by keeping the law. And during this part of the Bible, the way you're made right with God is through faith. But see, if you read the scriptures, you'll find that the way you're made right with God has always been through faith. Back in those genealogies I was talking about, there's an account of Enoch who walked faithfully with God... And he didn't die. He was taken away by God. Presumably to Eden or to, to heaven. I don't know exactly where, but what I know is he, was, he escaped death through his faith in God. Faith has been the standard from the very beginning. See, when Adam and Eve ate from the fruit in the tree... Their disobedience wasn't the actual cause for their separation. That was a symptom. But the root of that disobedience was their lack of faith. Noah built the ark. Noah was, his obedient, was obedient, but his obedience was a symptom of his faith in God. We read about that in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. It says, By faith Noah... When warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. And true faith, the kind of faith that saves us, looks like something. See, that's where we sometimes get wrong on the other side of the pendulum. 
True faith, saving faith, looks like obedience. When God says he's going to flood the world, you don't build a boat if you don't believe it. Because I'm not sure if you know this or not, but building a 450-foot-long boat is a lot of work, and you don't do that if you don't have faith. But Noah did. He had faith. He built the ark just the way God commanded him to. And then what did he do next? What did he do next after he built it? He got the animals. He filled it. It wasn't enough just to build it. Then he filled it. So in chapter uh, 7, verse 2, we read about this. He says, take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds, and of all the creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the floodwaters on the earth. So if we're looking at this ark, if we're looking at it as a picture, as a type, as a representation of the church, of Christ's church, then we have to take seriously not just the account of building the ark, but then the command that God gives Noah to fill it. So think about this for a second. Why did God allow the unclean animals on the ark? Wouldn't that have been a perfect opportunity to have only clean animals in the earth? If he's he made them to begin with. He made them to begin with, that's right. So even though he's separated clean and unclean, he still says all are welcome in the ark. So let's think about this. If the ark is representing the church for us, then why does God allow us unclean sinners into his presence, into his kingdom? Because make no mistake, that's the fingerprints of Christ's kingdom we see. God brings all who will come and have faith into his kingdom. So I, I can't really answer the why question. Why would God allow me, an unclean sinner, into his kingdom? I don't know why. Because I don't deserve it. I'm unclean. I'm a sinner. It doesn't make sense, and yet God did it anyway. So over in Acts chapter 10, Peter is given a similar command. See, God shows up to Peter in this vision in Acts 10, and he gives him this vision of all kinds of animals, clean and unclean. And he says to Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And what's Peter's response? He says, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. 
right? Because Peter's wanting to make this distinction. And God says, the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And see, in Peter's day, unclean was a word we would use to describe the Gentiles. So here in the ark, we're already seeing these fingerprints of God's intention to spread salvation, not just to his chosen people, Israel, but to all the Gentiles, to all the people, to the end of the earth, all who will have faith, all who will come and enter the ark. And so that that mission statement, we keep going back to this great commission. We're to make disciples of all nations. Not just the people that we consider to be clean. Because guess what? All of us are unclean in some way and don't deserve to enter the ark to escape the flood. But he calls us. Because someday we know that we're going to run out of time. We're going to run out of time to fill God's church. And for Noah, it was about 100 years from the time, well, a little less than 100 years. Because his sons were born when he was 500. The floods came when he was 600. So he had maybe, what, 80 years in there to build the ark and then fill it. But think about this. Our ark is already built. Christ already built it. So we have all of this time to fill it. So in verse, chapter 7, verse 11, we read this. It says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, or it's about 100 years after his sons were born, in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all of the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. And rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. It says, For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and the waters increased, and they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. It's like uh, 24 feet, by the way. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Everything on every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left 
and those who were with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for a hundred and fifty days. Now this is a this is a difficult portion of scripture. Make no mistake about it. So one of the reasons that when we have children's church and when we send them downstairs to have the gospel taught to them in their language is that we have to come to terms with the fact that there are parts of scripture that are very difficult to understand. Because when we talk about Noah's Ark in our children's church, we don't talk about the destruction and the death and the chaos, right? Our murals on the wall now has have the picture of the ark and everyone's happy. But this is not a happy story, at least not for the ones who perish. We don't have children's Bibles with with colorful pictures of, of dead bodies floating in the water and all of that stuff, because that's what we get in Scripture. That's a very grim picture that God gives us, and it was ugly. And look, I'm not much of a hellfire brimstone kind of guy. That's not my personality. In fact, it's probably my least favorite thing to talk about because it makes people uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. And my, my goal here is not for y'all to leave every Sunday with your heads hung in shame thinking about death and destruction. I don't want that for you guys. I want you to be uplifted and encouraged when you come to church, but I'm on level with you. When we see this picture of what God does to the earth, if we believe that heaven is real and it's wonderful and it's a beautiful place and we all got to go there, we have to understand that hell is a real place too. I don't even like talking about it, but we can't ignore it. We can't ignore the fact that there is an alternative to life that God gives us. But I will say this much. When we read the account of Noah and the destruction that God sent on the earth, if we think about all of those people who were wicked and how they perished, and if we think to ourselves, when we read the story, if we think to ourselves, good, they deserved it. We're missing the point. If that's the attitude we have for the ones that God perished, is well, good, they deserved to die in that blood. Missing the point entirely. You think God really wanted all of those people to die in the flood? You think God was overjoyed about the fact that his beautiful, perfect creation had become so corrupt that he was left with no choice? That they died because of their own sin? We read in Ezekiel 18 what God's attitude is. 18.23 it says, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? So I think we as a church, we do need to talk about hell and judgment and sin. We need to talk about those things, but our, our attitude should never come from a place of self-righteousness. Let me say that one more time. Our attitude about hell and destruction should never come from a place of self-righteousness because when we say that all the people who perished in the flood got what they deserved, think about this for a second. What do you think we deserve? 
Because guess what? Each and every one of us deserves the same fate. And so when we think about these things, we should be saddened. When we see people out in the world who don't know Jesus, we shouldn't hold our noses up like this. We should be sad for them. We should be just aching, wanting them to know Christ because we have a life that we don't deserve and we want them to have it too. And what sometimes we do is when we have our Sunday school version of this account, we sometimes let it cloud our judgment. Right? Because we'll say, we'll double down on it. We'll say, yeah, but those people who died in the flood, they were mocking and laughing at Noah. Right? You guys have seen the, the, the VHS videos and the, the children's Bible things. It always shows the people laughing at Noah building the ark. And they were really mean to him, so they deserved it. Right? That's what we teach our kids. Because he was building a boat in the middle of nowhere. And we get this idea that these people were extra bad and that they sealed their fate because they treated Noah so poorly. <clears throat> where did we read that, though? Did you guys catch where that part came up in Scripture? Because I didn't see it when we read through it. Because it's not there. When you read the actual biblical account, you don't hear about the people pointing and laughing and mocking Noah like we teach our children, which we shouldn't teach our children because it's not in Scripture. The account says Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. He was 500 when his sons were born, so that's probably 80 to 90 years that he was building this thing. So if the Bible says, if the Bible doesn't mention them laughing and mocking Noah, what were they possibly doing for 80 years while he was building the ark? What caused them not to repent? What caused them not to even notice that there was a giant boat building being built in Noah's front yard? In the next yard, covered with a tent. That's beside the point. Because in theory, I think we would all agree that if they would have repented, if they would have turned back to God, God would have relented and he would have saved them. We all believe that God is a good God and he forgives those who ask for forgiveness. Yes, I believe that. But they didn't. Well, Jesus tells us what they were doing for 80 years in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew 24, verses 37 and 38, Jesus says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. They weren't being mean to Noah. They weren't mocking him. They were so wrapped up in what they were doing, they didn't even notice. They didn't even see the storm clouds rolling in because they were so busy, wrapped up in their lives. And Jesus says, just like it was back then, so it will be in the coming of the days of the Son of Man. You see, most people that we interact with on the street in our workplaces, most people aren't mocking our faith. Most people aren't enemies to the faith. In fact, there are a few, but most people are so distracted by what's on their smartphone 
or what the latest celebrity just did, or what the latest sports team just did, or what the latest politician just said, or who they're going to vote for, or where they're going to get dinner. They're so distracted by all of those things that Satan has put in front of them to blind them, to distract them from God's judgment that's coming, that they can't even see the clouds coming out on the horizon. And I think it's our job as Christians to shake them and say, wake up! Because God wants you to turn back. God wants you to have life with him. And here's one advantage we have that Noah didn't have. I mentioned this already. Noah spent that whole 80 to 90 years actually like building a boat, right? So you could imagine that he didn't have much time on his hands left that he could go and warn the people because he was busy trying to actually build the boats. He was actually trying to build the ark that would save him and his family. But we don't have that burden. Our ark has already been built. It's already been atoned for with a ransom. It's already been waterproofed and covered. Right now, we're not living in the build-the-boat stage. We're living in the fill-the-boat stage. We're living at the time when we need to be out there gathering all kinds of people into God's church. The clean ones and the unclean ones. All kinds of people. And we need to be telling them, you're going to want to get in this boat. I know it seems crazy. I know it seems dumb. I know you've got a lot going on right now, but... You're going to want to get in this boat. So please, just, just come with me. Just trust me. It's okay. God has provided all the provisions you need. He's already filled it with food. He's already waterproofed it. He's already covered it. It's ready to go. It's got a door right in the front. Just, just get in the boat. See, the family you're going to need is in this ark. It's in this boat. We can do it together. Because the flood's coming. And see, as Christians, we get this beautiful picture of the paradox of the flood. Because as Christians, we know that we cannot live unless we die first. Noah and his family waited until the very day when the flood came before they entered the ark. This is a fingerprint that I didn't come up with. Peter came up with this one. So let's give him all the credit. In 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 19. Peter says, after being made alive, he, that's Jesus, went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hands with angels, authorities, and 
powers in submission to him. See, Peter saw these fingerprints. He read this account, and he said that flood, yeah, that was talking about judgment, that was talking about destruction, it was talking about death, but really, the flood, God was talking about baptism. It saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says every sin, every, every addiction, every desire, every struggle, all of that stuff, those parts about you that only you know about, those deep, dark secrets that you don't want to talk about because you might be too ashamed, guess what? God knows them. And he wants to wash them away. He says, leave them behind. I will wash them away. I will drown them in the flood. And so we see this picture that God gives to Noah as a picture of the church. He says, the flood's coming. The death is coming. But I will give you a way to be washed clean from the waters of baptism and then enter into my church, enter into the ark so that you will be safe, that you will live in eternity. So take your sin, take your struggles, all of that stuff, leave them out to be washed away in the flood and get in the boat with us. Just get, just get in the boat. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're, we're joyful that you have given us a way to stay safe from the storm, Lord. We're joyful that you have given us a place that we can enter into, that we can have rest. But Father, we lament for those who aren't inside the ark. We lament for those who haven't found faith in your Son, Christ. It gives us a, a heavy burden that we have to carry around every day knowing that there are those out there who don't know you, who are so wrapped up in their lives, Lord, that they don't even know that the destruction is coming. So we ask that you would just send your spirit, that you would send us to be your hands and feet, that you would send us out into the world to collect the clean and the unclean, all kinds of people, Lord. We ask that you would give us the courage we need to bring all kinds into your church. And we pray all of this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Y'all, we're going to do something a little bit different today, too. Um, I would like to sing for y'all our song of invitation. Um, this is a little bit newer song. If you know it, I'd love you to sing it. It's pretty easy to learn, though.